You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast. We are recording this episode on Wednesday the 2nd of November. This week we're going to briefly follow up on the snake saga we talked about last week. We'll discuss heavyweight opposition to a salary threshold for foreign workers. We'll talk about a village in Ukraine with a very strong Swedish connection and how it's being affected by the war. And we'll look at what the new government is doing to support Ukraine and Ukrainian refugees in Sweden. We'll shine a light on some energy and climate issues that are a source of friction for the new government, including a fuel tax cut and subsidies for consumers. And we'll examine how power companies are reacting to the new energy landscape. And stay with us to the end for a quick chat about All Saints Day and the lovely way it's observed in Sweden. I'm Paul O'Mahony and I'm joined here in the Stockholm studio by James Savage. And with us on the line from Malmö, we have Richard Orange and Becky Waterton. Hello, everybody. Hello. 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 Last week we talked about the King Cobra Servas, which lives at the Skansen Zoo in Stockholm and was renamed Houdini after its escape and nearly week-long disappearance. What's happened since we uh, spoke about the snake last week? He, uh, he just went home. <laughs> he clearly got bored of, uh, of a life on the run and just returned back to his enclosure. On the weekend, they said that we're going to leave him for one day and then we'll get him on Saturday. And then kind of before they even mounted this operation, they were like making a hole in the wall so he wouldn't be injured and all that stuff. And then while they were doing that, he just like went back by himself. And uh, so they didn't have to do anything at all. I think the thing I loved about it, though, was that they held a press conference to like welcome him back into his enclosure. I was almost expecting the king to arrive to like clip a red ribbon or something. Like it just fell so over the top. And we've spoken previously about the new government's plan to introduce a salary threshold of around 33,000 kroner for non-EU work permit holders. This week, Almega, which is the employer's organisation for the Swedish service sector, launched a scathing critique and called on the government to reconsider Why do they think it's such a bad idea? Well, they say that 10,000 people who are currently on work permits will be forced to leave if this um, if, if this proposal became law. So Chief Executive of Almirga, Anne Erbe, was highly critical of this suggestion. Almirga represents a lot of IT companies, for instance, who are extremely reliant on highly skilled workers from other countries, not all of whom earn 33,000. Many of them are sort of at the beginning of their careers and therefore on a little bit less. And they said the idea that the government has that people already in Sweden could or would do the jobs was, was simply 
unrealistic, which you can understand if, particularly in, in, in a sector like IT, it's not you can't just magic up programmers, developers. And they said that their members would love to recruit from within Sweden. But the fact is, there aren't always the people with the right specialisms. So what they're saying is instead, if they, if they want to get people who are outside the labour market in Sweden into the labour market, the focus should be on increasing incentives for Sweden's unemployed people to work and tightening up on unscrupulous employers who, who abuse the work permit system. But that this that salary threshold for them is the completely the wrong way to go. It's one of the first kind of direct criticisms from from business to the government's programme, which mm. I think is kind of interesting. What, what I find quite interesting is that the criticism seems to be coming increasingly from people on the right of this new government, whereas maybe the criticism from the left doesn't make it into the media so much, because it's like they would say that, wouldn't they? This is, I think, a signal of the fact that the, the, the right of Swedish politics is divided and, you know, particularly the economic right of Swedish politics. And it's not entirely clear that the new government is particularly far on the economic right of politics. You know, restricting labour migration is ultimately not a particularly economically right-wing thing to be doing. And there could be trouble ahead as well, depending a little bit on how much of the Sweden Democrats' economic policy over the next, of course, the next four years gets through, because the Sweden Democrats are quite far to the left on many aspects of economic policy, particularly taxing and well, particularly on benefits. They want higher unemployment benefits compared to the, the traditional right-wing that often want lower unemployment benefits. So, you know, there, I think there could be some more trouble from business organisations during the course of, 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 the, of these next four years. And I don't think the moderates can take their support for granted if they start pursuing what business organisations would see as anti-growth policies. And this is an issue that affects a lot of our listeners, so we'll be watching it very closely. Sweden's government pledged before the election to bring in an energy subsidy to compensate consumers and businesses struggling with record high bills. And a few days ago, they outlined what the subsidy will look like. And they've received serious criticism, um, some of it internal, from senior moderate party representatives in southern Sweden. Why are they critical? Well, it's it's absolutely nothing like what they promised in the election. It's actually it's actually the plan that the Social Democrats uh, set in motion in August. Only instead of the ninety billion kroner that the Social Democrats promised, it's only fifty five billion kroner. So it's actually it's not only the other side of politics policy. It's it's not even you know only like two thirds of the amount of money that the other side was promising. So it's it's a it's a massive disappointment. And what this is is it's a payment for high bills that have already been paid. So between October and last year and September this year, whereas the moderates in the election promised to cover a majority of the excess costs that businesses and consumers face this coming winter, which is expected to have really high power prices. And they also said in the election that the, their plan would be in place by November the 1st. And even when they announced it last week, they didn't say when this money would start to be paid out or give any kind of timelines or only the vaguest ones. So what's really striking is these are some of the most senior moderates down here in Skorna. Like, so there's um, Carl Johan Sonnesens, who's the head of the regional government in Skorna. So he's the head of the, he's the top guy in the whole region region. And his brother, Christian Sonnesen, who's a slightly controversial mayor of Staffanstorp, and also Karina Wutzler, who's the mayor of Wellingen. So they all came out and said, this is a, you have broken the promises. So they weren't holding back at all. They said, we in the election campaign told our voters that this would happen and you're not doing it. And we expect you to. When the Social Democrats criticised them for this, 
it doesn't have that much impact. But when their own powerful moderate party district comes out and says you've broken your promise to voters, I think it's pretty hard hitting. And we've got we've got an article on the site um, explaining who's eligible and how it works. If anyone wants to read up in a little more detail, and um, we'll put a link to that article in the show notes. When Ulf Christensen announced his new cabinet a few weeks ago, one of the aspects that made a lot of headlines was the closure of the Environment Ministry, which prompted fears from climate groups that the government was deprioritising the climate at a time of global crisis. Becky spoke yesterday to Kimberly Nicholas, Associate Professor in Sustainability Science at Lund University, to get her view on Sweden's climate policy. Here's some of what she had to say. I led an analysis by nine researchers through the independent organization Researchers Desk, and we looked at results from a survey to all of the political parties in Sweden about their climate policies. And we wanted to compare what are the parties proposing to do with what does science say is necessary and effective. And the bottom line is that Sweden, if if the world follows the path that Sweden is now headed on, we are headed for climate disaster. The parties that are in power are not going, don't have policies that are effective that are going to reduce emissions down to near zero, which is where we need them to be. And it's really scary and disappointing to see the results of the election because it's a really critical time for climate. What would you say... Uh... The policies that you're most concerned about? For countries like Sweden, we actually need to address overconsumption. It's not enough to uh, have a circular economy and consume resources efficiently because Sweden, for example, consumes about four planets worth of materials. So if we do that with perfect efficiency, we're still taking more than our fair share and not living within planetary boundaries. So when we looked at this need to follow this avoid, shift, improve framework, where we actually avoid doing unsustainable things, then shift to sustainable technologies or ways to meet people's needs, for example, like shifting from cars to active transport and public transport, and then finally making technical improvements. What we found is that most parties are really focused only on the last step, which is you know the least important and should come last in the chain of so that many parties are focused on, for example, okay, we're going to build charging infrastructure and have electric vehicles. And that's good and necessary for the cars that remain, but actually we need to reduce driving in the first place and reduce reliance on cars to meet climate, health, and equity goals. And most of the parties, especially those now in the government, did not acknowledge that reality. If we look at the governmental parties, at least, kind of the Christian Democrats and the Sweden Democrats, and to some extent the Liberals as well, the, their major climate policy is just nuclear power. Like That seems to be the only thing they're speaking about. What's your view on that? Like How, how do you think that's going to affect policy for the next four years? We know from research that nuclear is very unlikely to play a significant role in reducing emissions between now and 2030. It takes a long time to build. It's slow to get off the ground. There's often delays and permitting issues. So we need to be reducing emissions now. And nuclear, unfortunately, is not in a position to help us do that in these critical next about 80 months, which is what we have left of our carbon budget to meet the goal of the Paris Agreement to limit warming to 1.5. So I think it's a big mistake to focus so much energy or sorry, pun not intended, (laughs) so much time and political capital and uh, policy effort on nuclear as a primary solution because it just isn't possible that it can contribute the emissions reductions we need in the near term. Whereas we do have the technologies that can do that and that's not the focus of the current policies. We've just been listening to Kimberly Nicholas. Can you summarise some of the other things you talked about, Becky? I think one thing that I did think was really interesting, in the TIDA agreement, this kind of coalition agreement, politicians had said multiple times 
we should listen to science, policy should be evidence-based, it should be fact-based, it should be in collaboration with research. If you read the report, you can see that that's absolutely not what they're doing. They're not listening to science and their policies are not reflecting what science is saying. We've got a write-up of the interview on the site and we'll put a link in the notes for anybody who wants to read more of what Kimberly Nicholas had to say. And it was a really interesting interview, so I recommend you go and do that. There have been a few other developments on the energy front this week. Given that the swing back to nuclear power is such a central pillar of the new government's policy, let's have a look at what's been happening there. First of all, we heard from Uniper, the company that owns the retired Barshebek nuclear facility just across from Copenhagen. What do they have to say? Well, Uniper is a German company and they've said they want to open a new nuclear power plant at Barshebek sometime in the 2030s either a full-scale plant or one of these uh, small modular reactors that haven't yet been made or created, but that are in the sort of planning stages. So Orsa Carlson, who's the chief executive of Bashebek Kraft, which is the, the subsidiary of, of, of Uniper that owns Bashebek, said that it was thanks to positive signals from the government that they had decided they had the confidence to go ahead and to start planning this. What she also said is that it's not going to be just a nuclear plant on its own. They want to create a clean energy park. So there will be Yes, there will be a nuclear plant there, but around the nuclear plant, there will also be solar, wind and hydrogen production. So the nuclear energy will, will form those base power and then these weather-dependent power sources, solar and wind, when the wind is blowing and when the, or when the sun is shining, that those will chip in. But as we were talking about just now with the in, in, interview with Kimberly uh, Nicholas, that, that one of the big downsides of nuclear power is that it takes a long time to get launched. So we are now talking sometime in the 2030s, which is obviously a long time, a long time in the future. But what the moderates and the Christian Democrats would say is, well, yes, but you have to plan for the long term as well. And one of the problems that we have now is that we haven't planned for the long term in the past sufficiently. So while there's obviously a short term need, there is also a long term need and we need to think long term as well. This is certainly a long-term plan. Looking at the shorter term, wind power is uh, an energy source that can be rolled out much more quickly. Let's talk about that a bit now. In, in the TIDA agreement that underpins the new government, there's a section on wind power that reverses the previous government's policy by stipulating that Sweden would not subsidise the construction of the undersea cable network linking offshore wind farms to the electricity grid. How has the wind power sector reacted to this? I mean, definitely negatively, but cautiously so, because I think if you're wind power, you're so dependent on government approvals that you don't want to... You don't want to make an enemy of a new government. So they've been, they haven't come out so strongly saying this is going to destroy our business, but they have said that it will slow things down. And so the people who've commented on it have been Ørsted, which is the big Danish wind power developer, which wants to build a huge offshore park off southern Skåne. They said that the big problem was the sense that wind power can't expect sort of stable regulatory support, that this government might be hostile. And, and when you're making these big big billion dollar investments, that's a real deterrent. You need to know that you're going to make a profit. So the person developing the park is a guy called Jesper Kuhn Ullesen. He said that the new government was making the sort of the, the future regulatory framework uncertain, which was a was the biggest problem. But the other subsidiary problems were the fundamentals, which he said are getting permission in the first place, an electricity connection, and knowing that there's going to be a decent market for your product. So this promise to massively subsidise new nuclear is also a problem because it means that there might be an enormous amount of subsidised competition on the market as well, which could undercut their profits. The other people who've commented is Vattenfalls, the state 
state power company, which is planning a wind park, which will produce 2.6 terawatt hours a year, which is the equivalent to five nuclear reactors. So it's absolutely massive plant. And their chief executive in an interview on Swedish radio a week or so ago said that that might not get an investment go-ahead because of the new government plan. So the other person who's commented is the grid operator itself, Svenska Kraftnet, and they estimate that the cost of connections to offshore wind represent about 15 to 30% of the total costs. So obviously, if, if the developers themselves have to foot the bill, they said that's going to slow down the development of new wind parks. Yeah, that, that's about it. And one other thing that's important to mention is that Erlison at, at Ørsted, he said that it's not just Sweden that's developing offshore wind. You know, there's Norway and Denmark and Germany. And everyone's rushing to develop these uh, offshore wind parks because, you know, you've got really good wind availability out there. It blows most of the time out at sea and the wind is also stronger. So it's the problem is, is that if Sweden makes itself less attractive, then people will invest in other countries instead. Really interesting. Before the election, the government said it would reduce fuel taxes to dramatically reduce how much money people in Sweden were paying at the pump for petrol and diesel. A few days ago, the government and the Sweden Democrats revealed more information about this. What do we know and what's the reaction been like? The proposed cuts would mean a decrease of one krona per litre at the pump starting from January the 1st next year. It's mainly financed by a cut to the temporary energy tax cut, which was already in place. And this is kind of part of this big package of fuel cuts that the, the government and the Sweden Democrats are proposing, which would include an increase in the travel rebate that you can get if you drive to work in your own car. And it would also be decreasing this reduction obligation, which I don't know if we've spoken about before, but this is a rule that fossil fuels must be mixed with biofuels to limit the climate impact but also the, these are more expensive the biofuels are more expensive and so by decreasing this reduction obligation to the minimum eu level this could result in a four to five four to five not 45 krona price decrease per liter of fuel so that it would be the reduction obligation being decreased the travel rebate being increased and the fuel tax cuts altogether are going to work to lower fuel taxes at the pump Great. And what's the reaction been like to this proposal? It doesn't look as good, like it's going to go as far as they had promised during the election. So the Sweden Democrats had promised a 10 krona cut on the price of diesel and a 6.5 krona cut on the price of petrol. I mean, this is only going to be around five or six krona. And the moderates and the Christian Democrats had also promised to cut fuel prices during the election. So the first criticism is that it's not gone as far as they'd said. And then there's obviously the, the environmental aspect, which is like when you when you make fuel cheaper, it means that people are more likely to use more fuel. And when you cut down the amount of biofuels that are mixed into fuels, then that also makes it worse for the environment. I also spoke about this with Kimberly uh, Nicholas, the climate scientist that we spoke to before. And she was saying that this, this is a, a policy that really does impact the climate. And by getting rid of this policy, it's, it's, there's not really a lot of ways that you can make up for that. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. After Russia invaded Ukraine in February, thousands of Ukrainian refugees made their way to Sweden. You wrote this week, Richard, about some of the problems they're facing. What can you tell us about that? Well, a lot of it comes down to the Temporary Protection Directive, or TPD, which is this EU mechanism that was triggered on March the 4th this year and gave Ukrainians in Europe the right to sort of settle pretty much anywhere they wanted in the EU for one year. But because it's a temporary protection, it would allow the EU to open the doors to people fleeing conflicts quickly, but without making the same commitment to them that they make for other asylum seekers. So so you get the lowest possible amount of benefits and also you don't get the same rights to SFE, the free language learning programme in Sweden, and you don't get the same help from the Swedish Employment Agency in setting yourself up a life in Sweden because the idea is that it is temporary. You're supposed to be going back after a year. But now, just this month, the EU extended it for another year. So, And the war is dragging on and on and on. So this temporary situation that the Ukrainians are in is becoming more and more of a problem. And this week, um, a group of Ukrainian NGOs wrote an op-ed in Express and saying that 71 krona a day is just not enough to live on. And Ukrainians can't carry on with this kind of low level of benefit. And 71 kroner a day is actually the more generous benefit. If you're living in an asylum centre, it's only like 24 kroner per adult. That's your spending money. So that's, I mean, what can you do with that in Sweden? You can buy almost nothing. Especially in a situation where inflation is increasing. And I think I read in the Express and Peace that this amount of money, this 71 kroner, mm. hasn't been increased since 1992 or something. 1994, I think. 1994, yeah. yeah. So it's absolutely derisory amount. And, and, and the other problem, I mean, and before they wrote that, actually, the Ukrainian woman who got in touch to complain about the problems she's facing. She's actually one of the lucky ones. She's a computer programmer. She's got a job at the big Swedish company. So arguably things are going really well for her. But the problem is, is that under Sweden's system to get Folkbukford, which is, you know, registered as living in Sweden, you need to have residence for at least a year. And because this, the directive was triggered for a year, everyone who came as a refugee came after that. So by definition, nobody has had a right to live here for a year. And if you can't get registered or Folkbukford, you can't get a personal number. And if you can't get a personal number, you can't get bank ID. And as anyone who lives in Sweden knows, if you can't get bank ID, it's incredibly crippling if yeah, you're living you in Sweden without bank ID. you can't get a phone contract. You can't get... Yeah, there's so many things. There's so much you can't get without yeah. bank ID. And if you're staying for six months no big deal. You know, yeah, you get some money, it, life goes on okay. But as you're going in for a year and a half and you can't log into almost any service, mm. you can't use Klarna, you can't, you, there's so much you can't do without Bank ID. It just makes you feel like a second class citizen. I'm still trying to find out whether the extension of the directive for another year means that all of these people can now get Fought before and get bank ID. So I'm, I'm waiting for the tax agency to get back on that because none of them appear to have been contacted and told, you know, actually now you're eligible for a personal number. So we'll find out. I'm trying to find that yeah. out. For I people. mean, the way that I understand the policy, it's not about how long you have been in Sweden. It's about whether you can prove when you apply that you are going to be in Sweden for at least a year. Exactly, which they now can. So now they've extended it for another year, then they that now they, they will, they can prove that they can be here for more than a year. So Great. And some of the refugees from Ukraine came to Sweden from Gamal Svenskby. 
a village in Kherson, one of the provinces that Russia claimed to have annexed after the sham referendums held at the end of September, and where the Russians are in the process of trying to force tens of thousands of people to evacuate. I spoke recently to Jürgen Hedman, the author of several books about the village, first populated by Swedes more than 200 years ago. And we're going to listen now to a short part of our conversation where we talked about the Russian occupation and what the situation is like for people living in the village. The first Russian soldiers to to arrive uh, at April the 8th or something like that. And by that time, quite a lot of families uh, tried to escape and, and also went westwards and uh, in April and May, we received about 50 people coming up to Sweden uh, from Ukraine via Poland and, mm. and up to Sweden. Um, most of them settled on Gotland, where they had relatives. And these families, they consist of, of women and children because the men stayed back. And it wasn't until June as the roads out were closed totally and no one could leave. So after that, we have daily contact with the village via satellite telephone and cryptic um, messages. Um, And uh, the situation is hard today. Uh, The Russian military has occupied uh, the empty houses and the school and the nursery, and there are Russian tanks and Russian militaries in the village itself. And we also know that the front line is just some 10 to 15 kilometers north and northwest of this village. Our fear is that the battle line will go straight <laughs> through the village today. Yeah. And who, who is left behind in, in the village now? I mean, you said women and children made their way to Sweden and presumably others made their way elsewhere. Who's left behind in the village now? The village itself would consist of, of these uh, this Swedish village and the three German villages, former German villages. It has somewhat around 2,000 inhabitants and some 60% of them have fled to the west and 40% are back. Those who are back are elderly people, those caring for the elderly people, farmers who don't want to leave their farms and their cattle and so on. And quite a lot of number of of families with with small children also who thinks that they have nowhere to go, actually. This is their home and and they want to stay there. And especially we are grateful for the people who have been staying and, and caring for the elderly people. Because our main task, and by our here, I mean the, the society of, of Gamalsvenski people here in Sweden, it has been to to supply this home for the elderly with medicine and, and other needed material for them. And we consider them very brave to stay and, and care for the elderly people who are really left behind. Do we know if any of the soldiers from Kamal Svensky have died in the war? Yes, we know that. Some some 10 younger men have, have been killed yeah. un, until this date. 
That was Jürgen Hedman. The story of Gamal Svensby is absolutely fascinating. And if you'd like to learn more, we've written up a longer version of this interview and it's available to read on the site and you can find a link in the show notes. Now, staying with Ukraine for a moment, has the new defence minister, Paul Jonsson, indicated any change in how Sweden will support the country as it seeks to defeat Russia? Yes, he has. So Paul Jonsson has done what what I think a lot of other countries are now looking at, which is to say that they will send more sophisticated and heavier advanced weaponry to Ukraine. A lot of what's been sent so far has been light armour, light weaponry. But now we're talking about more advanced air defence systems and possibly advanced artillery systems being sent to support Ukraine in um, beating Russia on the battlefield. Um, so far, there are no specifics, but the government has received a memo. It's a classified memo. We don't know what's in it, but we know that the memo exists and it's been received from the military and it's and it's there to specify what weapons Sweden's military can spare that it doesn't need for itself. Remember, we're trying to build up Sweden's military at the same time. There are needs here as well. But this memo will show what's left over and that will form the basis for the government's decision. Watch this space and uh, see, see, what, see what they end up sending. Great. And of course, the, the NATO debate is, is rumbling on and um, Sweden is still waiting for Turkey to approve its application. But I think we'll probably come back to that next week because Ulf Kristersson will be meeting the Turkish president Erdogan. There was an interesting point, though, this week where, where Sweden's a man whose title is often translated as Supreme Commander, which I find a, is, is a slightly odd, odd title, but, but he's, the, he's the, um, the military head of Sweden's armed forces. And he said that he was not in favour of having a specific Swedish exemption from having nuclear weapons placed on Swedish territory as Sweden goes into NATO. Now, this is this, this is not to say that he was expecting nuclear weapons to be stationed here, but he was suggesting that Sweden should not have any cutouts from NATO membership, you know, no exceptions um, on, on nuclear weapons. So um, that was an interesting development, I thought, because certainly um, I think the other, both the other Scandinavian countries that are in NATO have this exclusion and maybe Sweden. Yeah, might. and a lot of politicians have called for Sweden to have that exclusion. And a lot well. of politicians. It's, it was one of the arguments for going into NATO to say, well, look, we can make this a bit more neutral, a bit, a bit less, a bit less painful for, uh, to swallow for people who've traditionally been opposed to joining NATO by saying that we won't have nuclear weapons based on our soil. But he says, no, that's not how we should do it. Okay, interesting. So this podcast goes out on Saturday the 5th of November, which is when All Saints Day is marked here in Sweden. And we have an article on the site that we'll link to in the notes, explaining, among other things, how the Swedish language actually has two words for All Saints Day, one of which corresponds to the 1st of November, while the other refers to the first Saturday of November. But the nicest thing about All Saints Day in Sweden is how it's observed. What can you tell us about that, Becky? The traditional way of observing it is that you take a candle to the grave or the kind of memorial area where your relatives are buried. And then you just go and you light the candle, you kind of sit there and you remember your relatives. You can maybe take some flowers for their grave, you can take a little wreath or something. So I think obviously a lot of the people in our podcast or a lot of people listening to our podcast don't necessarily have relatives that are buried in Sweden. But I think one way that you can mark the occasion if you kind of want to if you want to experience it, you can you can go to cemeteries in Sweden, obviously, you know, give give kind of the mourners that are there to visit graves, show them respect. But you can go, you can leave a candle at these memorial, I think I saw them referred to as memorial grottos, these kind of memorial areas. And just think about the people that you've lost. Think if you've got any family members that you want to kind of pay your respects to. But there's also a few activities that are being held in um, in Sweden cities. I had a quick look and in Stockholm, the Storkyrkan, the kind of Stockholm cathedral, are holding 
a concert on All Saints Day. In Malmö, there's like a lantern walk where you can walk from one of the churches in Malmö to another of the churches in Malmö with like at night with you all holding your lanterns to kind of get into the spirit of thinking about the dead and showing respect to the dead. So I've never experienced it, but I was talking to my husband when we might go and visit his grandma's grave on Saturday just to kind of soak in the atmosphere and kind of see how does we celebrate this this occasion and having looked at the pictures of it there's these beautiful pictures of kind of lanterns and candles in in these kind of wooded swedish uh, graveyards it just looks so kind of atmospheric so i'm i'm definitely looking forward to kind of having a look at that and seeing seeing all of these candles for myself yeah i live close to um skogkyrkogården which is a huge cemetery and it's a unesco heritage site in uh, southern stockholm and it feels like half of Stockholm is there on All Saints Day. It's so big that there are like hot dog sellers outside. It's like going to a football match almost, except it's very respectful once you actually come through the gates. And it is so atmospheric. A really sort of nice way to welcome the winter in Sweden. Mm. It feels, it sounds a bit, it sounds like a slightly weird tradition on the face of it, but it's actually, it's actually quite moving and quite lovely. It is. Hot, despite the hot dog sellers <laughs> yeah. at, the, at the cemetery. <laughs> And it's this weird, it's this weird, I find it slightly contradictory because Sweden is so sort of Spartan and Lutheran in its Christianity. And this is one of the times when they sort of go completely the opposite direction. In well, a this very is sort of historically it was a Catholic festival. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, so there's this is like a remnant of Catholicism and also Lucia as well. You know, it's only sort of Spain that does that. And Poland, I mean, I was in Krakow and they had a, a similarly beautiful All Saints Day candle uh, extravaganza <laughs> extravaganza <laughs> and i think you know some, some of these traditions people can trace back to um pre-catholic times to sort of heathen times because sweden was heathen until she was only christianized in the, in the end of the first millennium ad so i mean it was much later than the rest of europe so it was uh, you know and i think a lot of these traditions have some elements of um of, of paganism combined with catholicism and then combined with lutheranism and it's a it's a sort of funny unique mix And that takes us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you especially to all our paying members who make this podcast possible. You can find links in the show notes to all the articles we've discussed. Thank you to our regular panellists, Becky Waterton, Richard Orange and James Savage and our sound engineer, Reese Edwards. I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back again with another episode of Sweden in Focus next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Today. Until then, take care.
That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.